I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter number 1 this morning. Philippians chapter number 1. We're simply going to pick up with our exposition from last week. As we began somewhat of a month ago, taking as our task the book of Philippians, verse by verse. We're going to read this morning, verses 1 through 11, but the primary text that we're going to focus in on will be verses 9 through 11. But for the context sake, if you've not been with us, I'd like to give you that context in the introduction of Paul's letter to the Philippians in verses 1 through 11. So if you're able and willing, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, because we see that pattern in Scripture. And we'll pick up our reading in verse number 1. We read this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ or the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart and as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Will you pray with me one more time? For the next hour. Father we come to you again. I pray to humbly press in. At the very throne room of grace. Solely on the basis of Jesus Christ. And Christ alone. We come with. I pray no pretension. Father but. We're on any pretense. Other than to say father. Do this morning. What you please. Father, we pray that you would do eternal things through your Son and by the power of your Spirit, by taking the Word and doing supernatural things, spiritual things with it. Father, impossible things. We pray, Father, that if we came filled this morning, that you would make us hungry. We pray, Father, this morning, if we came well hydrated spiritually, that you would make us thirst. That you would incline our hearts, Father, to your ordinances, to your standards, to your commandments and testimonies. That you would unite our hearts to yours in fear, the very fear of God, with reverence, yet at the same time with the utmost joy. And that whatever you would have for us this morning from your word, Father, that you would satisfy us with it. Father, that we would not long for things that you desire for us not to have. That we wouldn't be broken cisterns this morning that could hold no water. That we would be vessels in which, earthen vessels which contain treasures that are beyond this world. So, Father, let us revel in that. Let us glory not in ourselves or what man can do. Let us not glory in horses and chariots, but let us glory in this, that we know God. So, Father, may you use this time to make yourself known by exalting your Son. May the Spirit of God have full free reign 
I'm in the Word of God. Father, we ask not for a great sermon or for great things to be done. We ask for eternal things, a faithful sermon. I mean, that you would accomplish eternal things in our hearts. So, Father, help us to be faithful in the next hour. Help us to be reverent and help us to be joyful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. As I said, we began somewhat of a month ago, our journey in the book of Philippians began with laying the foundation of the history of the book by going to Acts chapter number 16, and then simply beginning in verse number 1 of the book of Philippians, written by Paul the Apostle, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, saved gloriously by the grace of God. We have that record for us in Acts chapter number 9. As Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, even to the point of being responsible for their death and murder, um, is met by the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ and forever transformed and changed. And it sent him on this life of living for the glory of God, particularly in the manifestation and the concrete work of serving the people of God, the church of God, and propagating the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 16, through God's sovereign purposes, he directs um, the apostle to a place called Philippi. It's in Macedonia, a place in the world that had never been reached with the gospel, and there... Uh, By God's grace, the power of the Word of God opens a young woman's heart, merchant, as well as a Philippian jailer, a Roman imperial worshiper. I mean, with those two and probably others within their families and through the preaching of the gospel, maybe even those that were imprisoned, possibly recorded sandwiched in between those, a little servant girl who was demon-possessed, delivered from um, from that spiritual bondage. And a church is born. A people who shouldn't be together. Three of the most odd people from different backgrounds, different religions. They are now worshiping together under what it seems the tutelage of our brother Luke, who writes the book of Acts to raise up leadership and to disciple that church as Paul, Timothy, and Silas leave. And 10 to 12 years later, we have Paul writing this letter to a people in which he carries with them, the text says, in his heart and has for them the very affection of Jesus Christ. Man, what a startling statement. You know, to say that he loves them and has them in such a condition within his mind thinking and in the depths of his heart, he could say that I carry you always, praying for you consistently and persistently. Um, and have for you the very love of Jesus Christ. That love which He has shed abroad in my heart, He has for these people. We begin to open that up. Paul and Timothy, verse 1, bondservants. Common slavery of Jesus Christ. And in that slavery, he, he builds different types of men externally. But in some sense, they carry, all of us carry, whether pastor, a member, teacher, uh, male, female, child, husband, wife, single, and we are all slaves of Jesus Christ, and Christ is extending to each of us the grace that He desires, and He imparts the faith to believe, and thus builds bodies made of eyes and feet and hands and fingers and toes, of organs, 
That is to operate in unity for the glory of that gospel. That's what we see in Paul and Timothy's life. That's what he encourages to the church. And that's what we see here in Philippi. He gives what seems to be a standard introduction. Yet at the same time, we know that it's more than just common pleasantries. In it, we see the grace of God being extended um, to these people. In verse number 3, he begins as he generally does. And that's with an expression of either the fact that he prays for the people... The churches that he writes to, and oftentimes an actual prayer, or if not an actual prayer, he communicates to them what he's consistently praying for them for. And that's what he does in verses 3 through 11. And we looked last week in verses 3 through 8 and saw this, this little excursion in the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. As his heart is exalted to worship of a sovereign God and thankful and a thankful heart, a heart filled with gratitude because of the ministry that these people have to the apostle himself. Thus he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. If you were to collect all the memories that I have from the first time in the gospel that I met, know this, I thank God for every one of them. As hard as they were when I was in the Philippian jail, when I was under Roman tyranny, when I was beaten within an inch of my life, know that in God's sovereign purposes, I don't hate those experiences. I thank God for them. They're God's grace upon my life. Because in that was forged a bond that even exceeds the biological relationships that we have in this life. That, that our biology and, the, and the, the, the relationships that are forged by blood and human relationships and even in the, within the family unit or to preach to us spiritual realities um, that, that go far beyond this world, particularly in those relationships that He forges by the blood of Jesus Christ, thus making us brothers and sisters, sons and daughters in the faith. That's exactly what He did here at Philippi. And as distant as they are, hundreds of miles away, Paul says, I always carry you within my heart. And I thank God because of our, not because of your kindness to me necessarily, not because, man, we had some good social ground, not because we come from different backgrounds and, or from the same backgrounds and we have this common heritage, not because we like to do the same things and go to the same spots and we like hiking together and our hobbies are the same, um, or we have the same trade, man, and I just really connected to the men of that church because they're blue collar men and I was a blue collar man, or they were theological in nature, or we were reading the same books. No, he says, the thing that forged our bond, and solidified our relationships and um, was the relation, a relationship of the, the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. You know, as you fought, I fought. We fought together, brothers in arms, soldiers in the faith, not being entangled with the things of this world. But but we're all in we're in this thing together. And that was that was um, and that was apparent that was trans, that was that was very apparent to the apostle Paul. That's what he thanked God for in their life. But you don't actually get the prayers for these people until verse number 9. So this little excursion, five verses, is just um, a glorious expression of his love for them and the relationship that he had formed, um, that God had formed in them and with Philippi, and he thanks God for it. And then in verse number 9, we actually see the prayers. We actually see the desires. So last week, we looked at verses 2 particularly, in 2 through 11, and we saw Paul's dependency upon God and the public exhortation of the word, as well as in prayer in general, that Paul was a man with all of his accolades, qualifications, and character traits, um, capable, you know, probably more capable than any other man in this world during that time. 
Um, yet you find that he his strength comes in weakness. You know, he doesn't come speaking in excellency of speech, but in preaching of the gospel. That he sees himself in relationship to God, not as something paramount that God is that God needs, but an instrument of glory. And that that in the foolishness of preaching and in the foolishness of men, he accomplishes um, supernatural spiritual things because in that he gets the glory. Paul says, I'm laying all that aside, all my accolades, all my qualifications outside of Christ. You know what it is? It's a heel of manure. You know, outside of the excellency of Jesus Christ, I have nothing to offer you, church. And thus, in, an, in a tremendous act of humility and dependency, um, God uses him to a measure that, that he's still an example for us today. And that he was a pen, simply an instrument in God's hand to write upon the pages of history and paint the picture of God's glory, of Jesus' character. And you see that expressed here. As he recognizes that there are things that Philippi, there are things that carry you in my heart. There's things I want you to have, but I can't give them to you directly. And I don't have those to offer. And all of my, and all of my capabilities and all of my human strength, I have, I, I, I don't have these things. Thus, I'm dependent upon God to give you grace and peace. And thus you see that, that Paul is a man of regular prayer. Why? Because he recognizes why he can't give them. There is a God who can, in Christ Jesus, by the power of His Spirit. Thus, He intercedes for those at Philippi. And number two, we saw that Paul's delight, ultimately, in God. So Paul's dependency and then Paul's delight. Material, it's in God, but materially. Ultimately, his delight and his pleasure is in God. He thanks God for them. The reason that the relationship is forged, birthed, and sustained is God and God alone. But materially... He praises God for them. That God's character is displayed through them. So it's not, the reality of God is not something theoretical, abstract, or removed from Paul. You know, it's, it's not something that's academic. That yes, we can glory in the Word, but the glory, but the Word is often made manifest as he experientially lived, lived out in this world. Thus, he, he sees the grace of God to him through instruments such as the people at Philippi. And he ultimately delights in God. And then we see the actual desires of Paul for the assembly of the saints at Philippi in verses 9 through 11. So you see dependency upon God, delight in God, and desires um, related to God for them. And can I say that this is, this is um, how prayer most generally and often works. As I was preparing this, I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 37. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. You know what you saw in that verse? You saw dependency, delight and desire. Right? Delight yourself also in the Lord and He, He will give you the desires of your heart. That as we come to God and see God in His his, his true nature and His character and in the display of the glory through the image of His Son, His character, work, and nature. Um, God works in us and through us and even gives us those things which we bring before Him in prayer. Prayer begins with God and prayer ends with God. You must know that. That's why we can come and ask anything in His name and He will give it to us. That's why as we express love to God and He expresses love to us, we are transformed and forever changed. 
And as we are changed, we begin to desire those things that are Christ and Christ alone. And therefore, we come to Him because we know that in that fountainhead of Jesus Christ, that that's where those things lie. That's where they breathe. That's where they live. And therefore, we are to go to Him for them. So as we live and are sanctified, we become more like Christ and desire those things that He desires. And we come to Him as we're delighting in Him. And He gives us the very desires of our hearts. And that's exactly what you see Paul doing here. Paul's not asking for superficial things. He's not asking for material things. He's asking for spiritual things. Only those things that, that God can give. Why? Because he is delighting in the Lord. And as he delights in the Lord, God shows him not only his greatest need, but their greatest need. And Paul is coming to him in faith, believing that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that he asks you think. You know, I mean, that's what we see in verses nine through eleven. You read these words. And this I pray that your love may abound to more and more knowledge and all discernment. That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want to look at this in two sections this morning. You'll see it somewhat of a division um, halfway through the three verses. So we're going to divide it up. Verses 9 through 10a. And verses 10b. Or the second part of 10 through 11. In verses 9 through 10a. You're going to see Paul's immediate concern. What is he praying for them now? What's the urgent need? Practically speaking. What is their immediate need? And then verses 10b, the second part of 10 through 11, what we're going to see is Paul's ultimate end or his goal. Um, what's, why does he pray for verses 9 through 10? Um, you're going to see that in the latter portion of 10 to 11. That actually, because of 10b through 11, birth in Paul is the desires for verses 9 through 10a. Think of it like this. Paul has an ultimate goal in mind for the Philippians. And it's through understanding that goal, the ultimate end, that informs Paul's mind to pray for them concerning verses 9 through 10. Right? So Paul has an ultimate goal in mind for the Philippians. He has something that he wants for them ultimately. And it's through understanding that that is, prayers are informed as to what their immediate and actual need is to get them there, right? And I want you to understand that. That we'll get to the loftiness and the meaning of his prayer. But what I really want to do initially is to show you the ultimate end and purpose. So what I, what I want to do is I want to flip it this morning. And I want to give you verses 10b through 11 first. Why? Because I, I think that that shapes the rest of the passage. It shapes the way that he immediately prays for them. And I think that if you and I are too um, understanding of the ultimate end, then we will more intellect, we will be better informed in how to pray not only for ourselves, but also for one another. Think of it like this. Um, this week is a week in which we set aside for a glorious time to celebrate and thank God, I pray, as Christians for one another and many things in our life, right? 
We call it Thanksgiving. It's a time where we gather together and we thank, or at least we should be expressing that thankfulness. And we know that that should happen all year. Yet at the same time, there's nothing inherently wrong with setting aside certain days for particular purposes, such as Easter and Christmas. But this holiday will gather together. And what will that holiday do on Thursday? For you ladies, you men, it's going to cause you to scramble all week, right? Not a regular week. Because you know a day is coming, it causes you to prepare for that day in a unique way. So we'll go to the store and we'll buy things that we haven't bought in nine months, right? I mean, we'll buy turkeys. Some of you have not fixed a turkey since last December. This unique thing that that seemingly only falls on our plates on, on two days out of the year. And what that day will do is that day will impact your immediate need. What's your immediate need? I need to get the house ready. I need to go to the store. I need to buy certain things. Why? In preparation for that day. So the ultimate end actually um, informs the preparation necessary to, 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 um, to prepare for that day. So when you look to Thursday, you know that I only have this amount of time. Thus, I need to, my immediate need is going to the store. It's preparing the house. It's getting things ready. Why? Because there is a special day at hand. That too is what happens to the Apostle Paul. Right? So in verses 10b through 11, he is, he, 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 he expounds upon the ultimate end. The goal. And that's what I want to focus in on first. So, or, what it is that now he understands concerning the congregation at Philippi. So what is it that he now understands concerning the congregation at Philippi that would provoke him to pray for more love? Okay, That's going to be his immediate concern. Give them more love. Abounding in knowledge and discernment. But why do you pray that, Paul? That's the question that, that's, that is answered in verses 10 through 11. Why is it so important to Paul to pray for that? Why is it such a need? And that's what we see in 10b. That you may be sincere. Or, it may be translated, in order that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, Paul rightly understands the eternal truth that these people at Philippi, those whom he carried in his heart, and those whom he had the very affection of Jesus Christ for, would one day stand before a holy, righteous, and gracious God. Thus, he's moved, in light of that reality, to pray for them concerning their present faithfulness in him, in light of that great day, the day of Jesus Christ. But the ultimate concern for for the Philippians, in verse number 9, and this I pray, um, is born out of the reality that Paul truly believes that one day these people will stand before God. And I need to help them prepare. I need, they need to be ready. So he prays for them to have more love. And that will be the instrument that God uses to keep and preserve them. So let us look at that. What does Paul know? What does Paul know that changes his life in this prayer life? Right? What is it that, that, that he comes to that reality? What's his ultimate concern? Number one, that you be sincere. That you may be sincere. We generally use the word in, uh, sincerity in the sense of simply meaning earnestness. But it's more than that. Actually, earnestness is a fruit of the character of true sincerity. So it does carry with it that nuance. Paul, what do you want? I want, I want, the, I want you to be sincere. 
Um, I want sincerity to characterize your life. But what does that mean? It literally means without mixture or without foreign substance. <clears throat> Thus, you may have a translation that literally says pure. That's a good translation. But literally, it means to be without mixture of a foreign substance. That Paul desires for those at Philippi to be pure, to be without mixture, to be without impurity. Paul recognizes that the Christian life and that the Christian is to be one thing all the time, not double minded, not hypocritical, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But they are to be as Second Corinthians one twelve, which is one of my favorite verses and most influential verses in my own life. Paul says this for our boasting is this. He writes this to Corinth. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. We are to have this, uh, end quote, we are to have, Paul says, this singleness of heart for Christ. And a simplicity of life that is totally devoted to Him and not mixed with worldliness or fleshly wisdom. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please Him who enlisted Him as a soldier. And it would do us well to live with that verse etched upon our minds that we are soldiers for Jesus Christ, that we are to be sincere without mixture in the world with one goal in mind, simplicity of heart, and that is to honor Jesus Christ. So Paul says that my ultimate desire is that you would be sincere, not mixed, not a hypocrite, not wearing a mask, but, but, but with a singleness of heart, with a simple life, not an easy life, possibly a hard life, but simple, because you have this one thing in mind and everything I do, it is for Jesus Christ and Christ alone. My prayer for you is that ultimately that you would be sincere and void of offense, he says, or without offense. Now, the word without offense, it's one word. It means not to strike against or to stumble. In other words, you don't actively offend a brother. You don't passively offend a brother by leaving a stumbling block. I think what, given the context here he's speaking of, is, 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 is Paul is saying that I want you to be without mixture, sincere, simplicity of heart, Aiming for Jesus Christ, not stumbling in on that day. Right? So that's the idea. That the Christian walk, life is a walk and it is to be a steady walk until and in light of that great day. I don't want you to stumble, church, into that great day. And the two desires are qualified by this phrase, till the day of Christ. The word here, teal, is an important word. As a man who once, and in some sense to this day, still hates English <laughs> as, a, as a subject, God had a great sense of humor in making me a pastor and a man of the word and a communicator. But this little word here is a very important word. And if you look back in verse number 6, you actually see Paul reference the day of Christ or the day of Jesus Christ twice. Verse 6 and then in verse number 10. He says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ or Jesus Christ. Verse number 10, you actually see that it's a different English word in the New King James. It's, it's not until, but it's till. And there's a difference there in the translators because it's a different underlying word. The one in verse number 6 actually gives more of a time indicator until. 
Um, it speaks of a, 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 a relationship of time or the idea of a terminus or an end point. Hence the term until. That he will complete it until. So begin here until the end point on that day. The day of Jesus Christ. In verse number 10, there is a different underlying word that, that, that really gives time in some sense, but it's more than that. Um, that most often it, it speaks of being relationship to or in direction of. It could actually be translated unto the day of Jesus Christ or, or in our, our language with the view of or in light of. So it's not necessarily saying until in the sense of, of perseverance until that, but, but in the sense of now you live in sincerity and without offense looking to or in light of presently. It speaks of a character of walk, not a, not a time frame, not chronology. But it speaks of, not chronology, but character. That the type of walk that I am have unto the day of Christ, that I am to, to be sincere and without offense in light of or in view of. That we, that the Philippians and we are to be without mixture and without offense as they live in light of that day, looking towards that day. What day? The day of Christ. The day of Christ's return. His second advent. When the Lord Jesus shall descend from heaven to be glorified in His saints and bring justice upon the wicked. Philippians 2, 14 through 16 mentions that day. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 mentions that day. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. We read these words. Therefore, we will make it our aim, Paul says, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that one may receive the things done in His body, According to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Might Paul might too say here in Philippians, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we pray for you. We pray for men. He recognizes in his own understanding, in his own finiteness, in his own slavery, that those whom God has placed in his heart and whom he has a great affection for will one day stand before the one who created the heavens and the earth and the one who came and became a man, humbled himself as a servant for men and whom he desires to, to, to live out their lives for his glory. That if one man died for all, then we too should die and live for him. And he wants these people at Philippi, he has a great affection for the very affection of Christ that he looks and he sees that great day and it impacts him such to pray. That he wants them to stand pure. He wants them to walk without stumbling. Thus he prays that God would so enlighten their minds that they would live every day with eternity etched into all of their thoughts, all of their deeds, and all of their actions. Paul prays that you may be without offense. That you may be without mixture. Why? Because Paul knows that they may not. It's a subjunctive of the infinitive be that means that it's a possibility. And Paul knows that it's possible for those at Philippi to be impure. It's possible for them to be double-minded. That they may not be hypocritical. That they may be stumbling. He knows. He's met those at Corinth. He knows. He's met those at Galatia. Or the, the churches at Galatia. He knows that those whom He labor for and those whom He fathers to, He knows and understands that they may not. 
They may stand ashamed on that great day. Why? Because they aren't without mixture. And they are stumbling in to that day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows the battle that rages within the saint because he knows the battle that rages in his own heart. Romans chapter number 7. He knows that there's a law within him that that he wants to do right, but he knows that there's a different law that he he can't do right. The things that he wants to do, he just can't seem to do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing. He knows the struggle. Thus he prays often um, that there's this tension between that he desires to go, yet it's needful for him to stay. Paul understands. That there are those within the camp that aren't sincere. That they do stumble. And he recognizes that we are saints. And that if we are going to stand sure on that day, then, 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 then it will be God that keeps us. So he goes to him in prayer. And he prays. What does he pray? He prays for them to be sincere. And without offense. Till the day of Christ. In light of. He prays men at Philippi, women at Philippi, boys and girls at Philippi. I want you to live every single day. In light of the reality that on that day you'll stand. It won't be before your mama. It won't be before daddy. It won't be before pastor. It won't be before teacher. It will be the the, the Holy One of Israel. To whom the very light of His countenance can slay millions. That's why He prayed. You know? That's why He prayed. And he prayed not only that they would be without, but that they would be with. Number four, that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. He moves from a negative argument to a positive argument. Because it's not enough to simply be without. Right? That they are to be with. You see, it's not enough to cease from certain unrighteous activities. It's necessary and desirous of God that you would have certain righteous qualities. Paul never stops with men put off. He always ends with men church put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take off the old man and put on the new. So Paul is desirous that they not only be without mixture, but that they not only be without offense, but that they would be filled with the very fruit of righteousness, a righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. That's it. He desires their lives to be characterized by love, by joy, by peace, by long-suffering. All that which is contained only with God. But his great concern is that they would not only be without offense on that great day, but as they stand, God would be honored and glorified in the reality of the fruit that He has not only purchased for them, but has bestowed upon them because they have been faithful saints. That Paul's ultimate concern for the Philippians was not that they would only be those things, but that they would be those things and possess those things to the glory and praise of God. So his concern, ultimate concern, was for them. But his ultimate, materially speaking. But two, there's a second aspect of his ultimate concern. Because his ultimate concern really was with God. That's what he goes on to say in verse number 10 and 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. The glory of God, number one. The outshining of God's perfection. The manifestation of His excellence. What the rays of the sun are to the sun. The glory of God is to God. We know something of the sun because of its rays. If it weren't for the rays, we would know nothing of the sun. There's no way to travel to it. There's no way to study it apart from it. We would be totally consumed on that journey there. If we were to begin to make it. 
and even begin to come into its, its, its orbit, its, its proximity. But by its rays, we know it exists. It communicates something to us and through us of light and heat. It creates an environment even for life to exist that we might know that. And so God's glory is the manifestation of His character and His work. It is the shining forth of His persons. His being that communicates to us something of Him that we might not know if, 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 if not. And that we might know that He exists. Otherwise, we could not know Him. You can't travel to Him. You would be fully consumed to even be in His presence. Thus, God sends these rays of glory to us on a daily basis through heaven, through creation, through conscience, and ultimately through the revelation of His Son, the very image of God. And that's his desire, that when the glory of God comes, it's manifested here, not in the, in, the, in, the, in the substantial being or the essence of God, but he's speaking of a glory to God that results in the praise of God. Why? Because those that stand before him are filled with the righteousness of God. That's how you glorify God, right? Isn't it amazing that mere creatures, the dust of the earth, could be um, the vessels and instruments of God's glory, thus that we would be containers in these earthen vessels to shine forth and display the glory of God as it reflects off of us to Him as the sons of as the as the rays of the sun. There will be on that great day, as sons of men, we will be glorified, and even the principalities and powers of 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 another world will bow down and worship God. Why? Because the sons of men will be revealed as to what they are. That we will be the glory of God. That, that Paul knows that if God's glory in some sense is at stake on that great day, thus you are to be sincere and without offense and filled with righteousness. Why? Because when that glory is reflected, because of that righteousness, it will culminate in the praise of God. The action of the creatures. Of all the cosmos, the universe will in one voice on that day see the glory of God manifested through the sons of God and what they finally are. They'll see redemption fully applied on that great day and it will culminate in one voice of the, of the delight and pleasure and of the holiness of God. Paul rightly understands the reality of a day that's coming in which God's glory is at stake. Thus, he prays. He prays that these people will be received as the Son deserves. And as He purchased, not only an eternal life, but a life to be filled with godliness. So Paul prays, it informs his prayers. If that's the reality... And there's an immediate burden upon his heart. God, how do I pray? Verses 9 through 10. We see the ultimate concern. Number two, we see the immediate burden. His heart, his heart is now shaped. May I just go ahead and just say this just in application because it's on my heart that, 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 that I'm convinced that, that one of the reasons we don't pray is because we don't live in light of that day. You know? Or we pray for nominal things and meaningless things. Our prayer lives are just dead, flat, and cold. And selfish, primarily. Because the last week, not one time has it crossed our minds 
that I'm going to stand before God with Monday. I'm going to stand before God on tu- with Tuesday and what I did at work. I'm going to stand before God with Wednesday without worshiping Him at all. I'm going to stand before God on Thursday when I abandon my, my responsibilities to my wife and children and live selfishly. And I'm convinced that if we had a right understanding and etched upon our minds the value and weight of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the duty, role, responsibility, and great privilege to be a soldier for Jesus Christ and a slave for the glory of God, that, 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 that born in us would be a desire as we delight in God to live out this life to be pleasing to Him on that great day. Why? Because He deserves the glory. That it would change our lives. If we actually understood that day. Meditated on that day. Woke up tomorrow and said, like, this day will ring throughout eternity if I do it for the glory of God. That God's glory on that day is at stake. And He deserves it. I'm going to give it, you know, I'm going to give it. And our prayer lives would be changed. We'd be praying for those things that are necessary to complete that for God and in Christ. So his immediate burden is shaped. He says in verse number nine, and this I pray. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. And I hope you see why I make that distinction there. Right? Verse number, it's, it's, it's verse number 10 and verse number 10b. It's in order that, right? So, so verses 9 through 10b, that this is, seems to be one construct in the original. It's all tied together. Why so that? In order that you may be sincere. That this is the means to accomplish the end. I think that that's in part why, um, It's interesting that in verse number six, Paul says, you know, that great perseverance of the saints verse. He says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Then why are you praying, Paul? Like I thought you were confident, you know? Yes, he's confident. But he also recognizes that that God uses means to accomplish the end or the task at hand needs tools and instruments to to bring about those. The house is not built um, just because you pay the bill. Um, while the debt is paid or the purchase is made, there are still means to accomplish that end. And the purchase that is made secures the means to that end. And Jesus Christ's death, yes, we can say with all surety that I am confident in this very thing, as certain as I can be, that God will keep me. Yet at the same time, it doesn't allow me to just throw my arms down and not labor for the rest of my life. Why? Because in the purchase of Christ, my eternal life was secured by means. And that, that he prays for those means to be effective in that life. And that's one reason he could say even with more confidence. <clears throat> because I know in Christ what was purchased. And the, the, what was purchased was the means to accomplish that end. What's one of those means? Prayer. Thus he prays. He doesn't pray because he wonders. He prays because he knows. He knows something about God. And his life has been changed as he's delighting in him and these desires are born in him. And he knows that if they're born in him, if he asks them in his name, that he will give them Christ's very words. So he comes full of faith, knowing that God will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. 
that Paul is a means to accomplish that end through faithful prayer. Through faithful prayer. Thus he prays. What does he pray for? He prays for love. And not just love. But love that may abound still more and more. In knowledge and all discernment. So that or in order that. You may approve the things that are excellent. In order that you may stand before God. Glorifying Him one day. So Paul is deeply concerned. Because he's living in light of that day. And understands that reality. Paul is deeply concerned about their present walk. And their future state before God. God's glory is at stake. What should I do? Maybe he thought. What's appropriate? You ever heard a message or read the word or somebody exhorted you? And you're like, that's, and God, God just, just illuminates your heart and your thinking. And you're like, what should I do? Like, I know that's true, but I don't know how to get there. So you go to God and you say, what should I do? What's appropriate? How do I intercede? You know, pray for their love. At some point, something is born in him that he's provoked to say, that, 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 that God provokes him to pray for their love. To abound more and more. That this is going to be the means or the instrument by which God uses to study their walk and purify their lives in simplicity and godly sincerity. Pray not that they have love. It's not a prayer for love in essence. But that's already evident. But pray that they exceed the known boundaries of the love that they have and overflow with it. That's the idea here of abounding. It's, I've got this finite container, it can only hold so much, so don't simply fill it to the brim. You know, little boys, and sometimes big boys, we like to take the milk glass and take it all the way as high as we can go with every drop. Um, Paul says, that's a skill in and of itself, but that's not what I want. This time, one, one time, boys and girls, like I want you to make a mess. I want it to be overflowing. It's okay to make a mess with love. Paul prays that it would be so, that, that, that these people at Philippi would be so filled with love that it would exceed their finite holding capacity such that it would flow out of them into their immediate environment. To what environment? To God and to His people. And to the world, right? Those are the only appropriate objects of this affection, this, this commitment that we call love. It's not to simply overflow as to waste upon the counter or the floor. And that's why it's not appropriate to do the milk experiment. But with God's love, it is to overflow to such an extent that it exceeds the finite boundaries, culminates in praise and service to one another as it terminates on its appropriate object, which is the material object of people. Love God and love your neighbor and ultimately God. Love God. Right? Why is Paul's central burden? Because love is the fountain of God's grace. It is the, the, the essence of God. First John chapter number 5. For God is love. Right? So to be loving is to be godlike. And to be godlike is to be most loving. You want to be most like God. Be loving. Overflowing. Abounding with it. It's, the, it's, it's not only the essence of God. It is in some sense the, the, is the fountain of all other graces. Galatians 5.22 Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love stands first in order according to Paul of mention and importance of all the other graces. And it's arguably the root and the seed of all other um, fruits and graces mentioned there. It's highly plausible that the other fruit of the Spirit, such as joy and peace, are simply manifestations of the love of God one to another. 
as well as the rest. And that when love truly rules and reigns in the heart of a man, it produces things like peace, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You won't find a truly loving man, a loving woman, a loving child in which you find love apart from those things. Not only is the first in order, it's in the importance and it's the essence of God, but it's, but it's, it, it, it is what Christ and the apostles argued to be the very summary of the law. Romans 13.8, Paul says, He who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, he goes on and lists the commandments. You should not covet, you should not bear false witness, and so forth and so on. And he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Christ says in the Gospels that all the law and all the prophets, everything in the Old Covenant, and the Old Testament, every writing and everything that they said, hang on these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. When you understand biblical love, you understand why Paul prays for them to have love. And more and more of it. For God is love. And if God is love, then let us be full of it. As we're full of Him. Can you begin to see now how. If Paul receives the answer to his prayer. And they abound in love more and more. That they will be like God. Without mixture. Without fence. And filled with the fruit of righteousness. That if love is a wellspring in their heart flowing over. Then the fruit of righteousness will feel. And God will be glorified on that great day. Paul is, we must too say, that what Paul is not arguing is for an isolated love, an unconditional love, regardless of any other elements. No, Paul is quick and careful in his wording and in his prayer to qualify that this love is a love that is overflowing, but it's overflowing with guardrails. And those guardrails are knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge, number one. This word leads us to something more than just a surface knowledge. It speaks more than just raw data. Paul uses an intensified form of the word knowledge here to give the idea of full genuine knowledge. In other words, it's knowledge upon top of knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It's more than just, than just raw um, data dump. In other words, he's praying that their love would abound along with an inward full certain knowledge of spiritual realities. That we need to understand that love is something defined. It's not something up for grabs. It's not something up for definition. That it has guardrails. One of those guardrails is knowledge. That love according to ignorance is no love at all. It's a lie. You're either overly emotional about something and committing spiritual idolatry. Or you love something that doesn't exist and therefore your love has not any objects. It's in a figment of your imagination. It's a lie. That love is to be dictated and directed by knowledge. Love should not be informed by our fantasies or what we wish to be true. But according to the reality and thus what we know. To grow in knowledge is not necessarily to grow in love. But to grow in love, it is necessary to grow in knowledge. Let me just go ahead and say love's more than a warm, gushy feeling. It may or may not be less than an affection or an emotion. That love is tied with that, but it's surely more than an affection. It's a commitment. It's a devotion. It's labor. It's service. It's sacrifice. It's dying to self 
for the sake of another. It's preferring one over oneself. As I just said, you know, it, it, it may or may not be less than affection, but I'm, I'm convinced that on many days it will be without affection. But know this, some days it will be. Loving your wife, loving your husband, loving your children, loving your God will be waking up some days, rolling out of bed, coming home from work, not desiring to, not feeling warm and fuzzy on the inside, and performing your duties because you're believing God's promises. They're covenantal. And you've committed yourself to the gospel for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it's time to be faithful. You won't feel like it on most days. Many days you will. And you thank God for it. As he bestows that love and affection upon you. And you feel it as Paul did with the very affection of Jesus Christ. And it overwhelms you to an appropriate response of service in which you take full force. And run to. Yet on other days, covenant love with King Jesus will be waking up and saying, I don't necessarily feel like it, but my affections will now bow to King Jesus because He owns them as well as my hands. That love is real. Love is true. It's not a formation of our fantasies. We don't get to define it ourselves. It must be according to knowledge. Otherwise, it's not according to truth. Number two, with all discernment. The second guardrail. For love is not only knowledge, but all discernment. It's an interesting word here that is found no other place in, in the New Testament in this form. But if you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 5, and you can or you don't have to, I'm just going to read um, one verse. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 14. You would find a, a, a word here that is in very closely related, and we might even say a cousin to this word. It's in the same family of words with the same root of the word. Paul here is speaking of spiritual maturity. In verse 13 he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And you may be thinking and underlining there the word discern, but that's actually not the word. It's a different word, a totally, completely different word that means something similar. Um, the word that is the same here, or is the family word, the cousin of the word, is the word there, senses. The word senses here refers to the ability to make proper moral judgments, to discern between good and evil. That's why he's able to be discern, discerning between good and evil, because he has his senses exercised. That's why he's spiritually mature. If you were to look at the original word, it would actually be very similar because it's very likely to the word that we get our word aesthetics from. It has contained within it its meaning, the set of principles governing the idea of beauty. That's the idea of aesthetics. It has immediately or materially in mind the concept of things like art. So someone who has a good sense of aesthetics would be someone who has a good eye. For spotting beauty, or maybe even making something beautiful. It could be an artist who draws or paints or, or sculpts. Or it could be one who decorates, who understands how things go together, colors and textures, to complement one another. It can also be expanded to other senses, naturally. To the ear, to the nose, to the taste. For example, we may say that one has a good uh, aesthetic sense for music. 
because they have a good ear. They have a good sense of rhythm, melody, and harmonization. They know how to put things together to form a beautiful piece of music. Or someone could be an amazing cook because they know how to balance the flavors of even the most simple ingredients. And a $2 plate could be on a five, in a five-star restaurant because of the aesthetic nature of their gift. And then you have people who could spend $500 on the most exotic ingredients and you'd rather have a TV dinner, right? Or you could have someone play the piano for 20 years that can't keep rhythm or harmonize with other instruments. They don't have a good aesthetic sense for that. Or you could fall, and you could fall victim in our postmodern age in which now beauty is in the eye of the beholder so you can have paintings that are worth millions that look like one of my toddlers painted it. It's abstract, they say. You just have to have an eye for it. But the problem is, is not that I don't have an eye for it, it's that I have two eyes. <laughs> and they're working. And the type of discernment here is not speaking of natural aesthetics, though, or the sight or sound, but the principle is the same. That the apostle here is praying that not only men would abound in, would have the ability of love because it's been shed abroad in their heart or have a knowledge of, of, of or a certain data, even a more intimate knowledge, but that they would have a, a, as a, as a full aged man in, in not just being a babe in Christ, but they would have a highly sensed, um, a spiritual aesthetics of a cultivated moral judgment. That they would be able to know and choose the specific things which the heart bathed in love and the mind enlightened by light should incline them to choose. Right? It's like this. A person can have knowledge of all the notes on a musical page. They can own a guitar or a banjo or a piano. They can know where all the notes on the banjo are. They can have the ability to pluck all of those notes and still make you want to leave the room when they play. But at the same time, you can have the, the right person who's aesthetically gifted in a musical area can capture your whole attention by the beauty that is possible with such basic resources as wood and metal. Because it becomes then glorious. Why? Because that person not only has ability, uh, raw ability, and they not only have knowledge, but they have discernment in that area, knowing not only the notes, but knowing how to put it all together in melody and harmonization. What Paul is saying to this little body of believers at Philippi, who are still relatively new church plant with relatively new Christians, saved out of paganism in the midst of Romanism, bathed in secularism, and they feel the pressures to conform to the world. Paul is saying, I pray for you that, that this love would, would abound more and more to the point of overflowing, yet also according to knowledge and all discernment. That the great burden and central passion of Paul's prayer is that the Philippians may be burning heart with compassion, but a well-instructed head and a sensitive and discerning eye. And when all of those things come together spiritually, in a man or in a woman, I can tell you from personal experience of the most simple of people, you can sit with them for a a short period of time or sit for a, a short sermon or a long sermon or whatever or just spend a day with them in, in their home or have a meal, you look and you just say, man, the beauty of God rests upon that person. You know, they just display the character of God. 
just dripping with, with the knowledge of God. And not only that, I can quote verses, but, but the wisdom just precedes them. You know? You can see a mother who's just bathed in God's love and it's abounding and it's pouring out on her children. You know, and you just look at that and you think, you think that's the highest calling. You know, men are just, just, just falling over one another to be pastors and to be preachers and to be, to be prominent singers and entertainers and to just pervade the church with their special gifts, you know, and you just, it's just the ugliest thing you've ever seen. Why? Because it's just, it's selfish and it's self-aggrandizing, you know, and you can just walk into the most humble of homes with the most humble of beginnings and the grace of God is so present and overflows and you leave changed. Like the, the, the symphony that you heard in the beautiful landscape that you saw this morning that, that, that proclaimed the glory of God did not do it near in measure that that, that that humble wife did with her children as she responded in loving discipline to her. You know? And it just speaks of another world. It speaks of something greater, something better. And you just see this righteous adherence because she knows God and she believes God and she's embraced God in such a way that it pours out upon her husband and her children. You know, it's just one of the most beautiful displays that you've ever seen. And you think, man, that like if I could just 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 taste a little bit of that glory, that would be. Amazing. One day we will in full measure. But that's what it's speaking of. It's speaking of a man who is, is generally aged. Um, is, it's speaking of someone who, who, who by the reason of his senses, exercise the reason of his senses. That's the idea. You know, that it comes not just, uh, sure, God can just, in His revelation, pour it out upon a person and fill him with full measure and direct revelation. But generally speaking, that's why elders are to be elders. Or the older women are to teach the younger women and the older men are to teach the younger men. Why? Because they have a life of exercising those senses. It's more than just black and white and quoting a verse. It's more than a data dump. And it's more than just knowledge. It is wisdom. It is principles. It is discernment. It is knowing how to operate those six strings all at the same time to, to, to make the right decisions and discern what is right and wrong in this in this, in this place. I don't have mama to ask. I don't have daddy to ask. I don't have a pastor there. I don't have a teacher. I don't have um, a, a, a leader in which I can lean on. And when I'm at work or when I'm at home, I don't know what to do. So I lean wholly upon God and I take what I do know and what God has accomplished in me and I make that decision and, it's, and it turns out aesthetically beautiful as all the things come together. You see a picture of God's glory. That's the idea. That's what Paul asked for. Not, not that they would just fall over each other in warm affection in a gushy display as they write love letters one to another. But they would know how to love one another in knowledge and discernment. That they may approve those things that are excellent. That's the idea. That they may test. That they may approve um, those things which are excellent. Those things which are morally good. Make those decisions that honor and glorify God. And are aesthetically pleasing to Him. That are beautiful in an objective type of way. Beauty in my, my estimation. Love in my estimation. Is not in the eyes of the beholder. It is not to be formed and fashioned by the, by the, by the knowledge of men. Or by the fancies of our mind or heart. It is not a formless 
just blob. It is objective. God is beautiful because God is holy. Love is beautiful because love is holy. And it, needed, it needs to be handled well and not, not, not wielded to the destruction of other individuals um, because it comes without knowledge or discernment. Love is... Pray for love. Because it is one of those... It is that one thing that seems to make or break every action. Right? The application is this. Let us grow in love. Let us pray for love. Not just a warmy, gushy feeling where we come in and fall over each other with hugs and kisses and go home. That's not love. It might be love. And it might just be the love of self. I'm convinced that the part of the issue is is not that we don't love, but that we do love. And we love the wrong things, particularly ourselves. Committing spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery and broken cisterns in which... The love of God is filtered out to, 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 to and terminating upon things that don't and don't deserve that. Primarily. God's love is preeminent when shed abroad and used according to knowledge and discernment is directed. And it looks different sometimes. You know? Love administered to a child, even in our midst, may look like going to the bathroom or stepping outside. Why? Because they know they need to be respectful and reverent. They need to be respectful of others and reverent to God. You know, teaching them, instructing them. It may just look like day-to-day things. You know, it may look like correction to a brother. It may be like a, a phone call. It may be like a, a, a meeting at the house. Why? Because you see something in their life that's not right. You know, They may not receive it, but you're using the guardrails. And you know that, that if they carry on in that direction, that, that that pride will kill them. You know that that person, that your children... Boys and girls, husbands, wives, children, singles, ladies, husbands. You look around and you know like these people are going to stand before God one day. You know? They have liberty. In some areas, yes. But in many areas, no. And that a loving expression, yes, is encouragement. It's coming alongside. It's, it's, it's putting an arm around their shoulders. It's loving. But at the same time, sometimes it's different. Why? Because love has to be discerning. And that's when it's beautiful. It's beautiful when reconciliation happens, when restoration happens. It's beautiful when you go to that brother and he's clear in sin and he didn't know it. And he looks at you and he says, I've wronged God and I've wronged you. And I've wronged my wife. I need to get that right. Why? Because, because I'm going to stand before God one day. And His glory is contingent upon my faithfulness and the fruit that He fills me with. And I'm to be a servant to her. I'm to be a slave to her. And, and my children need to see the gospel. They don't need to see a hypocrite who says one thing and does another. Let us grow in love. Let us grow in love. Let us grow in love. It'll be without mixture. Your lives will be without mixture then. It'll guard you from the impurities. It'll keep you from stumbling. It'll strengthen your step. It'll produce you and fill in you the fruit of righteousness in your life. Once it springs forth, all the other graces that you've desired will grow. You're looking for peace in your life and you can't find it. You're looking for um, self-control and you wonder why it's not there. Are you filled with love? Are you? Grow in love. Can you see how it could guard you from offense, being a stumbling block to another? One person, Alexander McLaren, writes, this, this keenness of conscience follows on the growth of love. Nothing makes a man more sensitive to evil than a hearty love to God. Such a heart is keener to discern what is contrary to its love than any ethical maxims can make it. 
Man who lives in love will be delivered from the binding influence of his own evil tastes. And a heart steadfast in love will not be swayed by lower temptations. Communion with God will, uh, from its very familiarity with Him, instinctively discern the evil from evil. As a man coming out of pure air is conscious of vitiated atmosphere which those who dwell in it will not perceive. It used to be said, he says, that Venice glass would shiver into fragments if poison were poured into the cup. Does it with us? Do we even know that evil is present? Do we know how to discern between that which is right and wrong? Or are we deceived because we lack love? I want to grow in love. How? Pray. May we take this portion of Scripture as a pattern of our own prayers. Paul prays for it because he knows it dwells in God, in Christ. Through Christ alone it's possible. He knows, humanly speaking, it's necessary if they're to remain faithful. So he tells them, isn't this wonderful? He tells them, I'm praying for you. And this is what I'm praying. And now they know. They too know what they need. They knew too know that they need to go to God in prayer for this. That if they're going to stand faithful on that great day, in light of that day, I need the love of God abounding in my heart. You want to know how to pray for yourself? Use these prayers as a framework. Pray that God would give you that love. You know what that you say? I don't know what it looks like. Well, it may begin with a love for the word of God. Why? Because this love that you're praying for is a love according to knowledge. Right? And when he begins to answer that prayer, it may just wake up and say, I want the word of God. Why? Because that's the means to accomplish the love. Love is, is according to knowledge. It's not according to life. It's not something more fanciful. What you're praying for really most of the time is, Lord, that I would just, I would, I would just gush over my wife. Well, the answer to prayer may just be waking up and God telling you, you need to know her more. Live with her. Dwell with her. That there's a growth in grace. Not just in a mere head knowledge. But it's not knowledge enough. You need discernment, you know. I think this may be our greatest sin, brothers. Heads full of knowledge that lie dormant upon our minds. I don't think that our problem is knowledge. But our problem may be knowledge without discernment. It... It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we know what to do and we fail to do it. And we even make it virtuous some days. I mean, I can't, I don't have time for all those things I know I'm supposed to do because I need to work and care for my family. What do you think the most loving thing for your family is? For them to see your devotion to God? Take them with you. Say, we can't go witnessing. I can't go witnessing with you. Bring your family. You know? You know, I can't come to the fellowship because I need to, you know, take, to bring them. Bathe them in the love of God and run God's people. Live it out. Hebrews 5 tells us that the most spiritual person is not a person who has, a, has the highest spiritual IQ, but the person who exercises their senses. You know how to grow in love? Love one another, brothers. Love one another, sisters. That's why generally the most aged men and aged women are the most loving why? Because they've spent their lives honing that craft and loving others. You know? It's like a bladesmith or like a skilled worker who has tools in his shed, but he never utilizes those. You know? What kind of blade do you think he'll forge? The kind when, like most young men in their marriages, and it falls apart. You need to persevere, you need to practice love. 
You need to hone your senses. See, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to pray that. And I would say that you need to begin looking in light of that great day. As I said earlier, the reason that we're probably prayerless and the reason that we're um, useless and the reason that we are loveless is because we don't recognize the gravity and the weight of that great day. That you, brothers and sisters, your children, those sitting all around you, will stand before God one day and give an account of every action, every thought, and every deed. And they and you will stand there alone. And everything that you have will be tested by fire. And it will amount to gold, silver, or precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble. And it may just very well be on that great day that the very kingdom that you built is fully burned up. And thus you have nothing to display for the glory of God to the principalities and powers of this age and the age to come. That you will be nothing more than a bland human vessel with little to offer God. But may our hearts and lives by the very power and spirit of God filled with the fruit of righteousness give Him what He deserves on that great day. And that is a sincere heart of simplicity. That is a life without mixture. That is a steady walk to Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness. So on that great day, um, Jesus Christ receives the reward of His suffering. Maybe, maybe you don't love, maybe you don't pray, maybe you don't, because the reality of God's presence and you're standing before Him one day has not yet been etched and burned into your minds such that you are affected in your inner man to be moved. Look, if that's true, men, how we should be laboring, how we should be asking, Father, how do I do that? How do I pray? What do I do with my children to prepare them for that great day? What do I, how do I lead a church, God? God, I want to betroth them to Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin. And I, I want to say with the Apostle Paul that I, that I travail in birth until they, you know, Christ be formed in them. But I don't know if I can really say that. How do you get that? I don't know how you get that other than being in the presence of God, falling on your face like Isaiah and being forever transformed and changed. May God birth in us that this morning as we think on that great day. And it calls us to move in action. It calls us to depend upon God. Because we know without Him, it will not be capable or possible. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You. For who You are. And what You accomplish in our lives. Thank You for the privilege it is to bow before You. And to think on You. And to revel in Your glory and Your grace. Father, we are what we are by the grace of God. What attention we have in our hearts. Because we know in some measure in this old body, in this sinful nature, this corpse that we carry around, we know that in some sense we'll never be able to give you the glory and honor that's due your name. But in the same time, we know that there's windows of glory 
and grace, in which by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God, which is purchased for us in Jesus Christ, that we can truly love you with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Father, we pray for more of that. We know that we already have love as those at Philippi. We pray for more. We know that we're not stingy in that, Father. Because we know that love abounds in your Son. And we simply pray for more of Him. We want no more of measure than what your Son has purchased. We want no more of measure for us than for anyone else. So pour out on us, Father, the very love of God. And may it abound in measure. May this finite container and vessel not be able to contain the glory and majesty and the love of God. Father, that it was made for. And may it pour out upon my children. And may it pour out in commitment to my wife. And may it pour out in humble service, Father, to a people who were once not your people, but now are. Father, make your Son known as love abounds. Make that great day the day of our lives. As we think on Thanksgiving this week and the preparation needed, may we think more on that great day and the preparation needed. Help us, Father, to prepare ourselves now in light of that great day. Make God known to us. And birth in us prayers that once were never ours. Desires that once were never ours. Help us to delight, Father. And help the world to know that Jesus Christ is King of all. And may we give to Him ourselves as well as, as, well as every inch of this church and every inch of the world. May He receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Let us just commence with the doxology. I think it's number 440 if you...